0: Hi, this is Emily Gibson, co-executive director and co-founder of ATX Television Festival. This is Jennifer Morgan, director of programming, and you're listening to The TV Campfire. So this week we are releasing the panel "Grief and the Messiness of Loss" plus a special interview with Meredith Averill after the panel, which was done in our podcast HQ. There are some spoilers in this panel,
1: and so maybe
0: in the intro as
1: well. So <laughs> just
0: heads up because we talk about character deaths, or they they talk about character deaths, and we're going to as well, and we are as well. So, <laughs> but we will say all the character deaths will make. A promise, right now. All the character deaths that we will talk about are a couple years old. Yeah. So nothing that has been released in this past year. We'll we will not make spoil that. the Game of Thrones finale for you. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a different Game of Thrones death, but at least not the finale. Correct. Okay, that's fair. That's a good. That's a good compromise. I feel like we've made. Yeah. Jen, this one really came from you. This pan. This idea for the panel really came from you. Do you remember when or what sparked the idea? Honestly,
2: I kind of out of nowhere last fall, I binged Sorry for Your Loss, which we have the showrunner on this panel. And I just kind of inhaled it, which is not maybe the preferred method for a show about grief and loss. That seems like Almost exclusively.
0: Did you watch it all in one sitting? Pretty much,
2: yeah. Maybe over two days. But I mean, they're half hour episodes. It was my first Facebook watch show that I had actually sought out. And I don't know really what made me want to watch it but once I kind of dove into it I just couldn't I couldn't stop and it was I don't know it's such it's such like a moving genuine like vulnerable show Elizabeth Olsen is amazing I know she's in all the Marvel things but (laughs) this is a much quieter (laughs) smaller thing that she's she's really fantastic in and it just dove into so many important things from you know depression to you know, grief and recovery and addiction and and all of these things that feel like such huge, weighty topics, but it did it in such a quiet, grounded way. It's got a small cast, so it really like almost brings you like into the living room with it and you just kind of sit with it and feel it and go through this with her. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And um, we ended up talking to Beck Media who they actually have an office here in Austin. And we found out that they work with that show and and Facebook. And the first thing that came to mind is I want to have, you know, a conversation about this and what the show is doing, because I think it's really sort of the overriding
0: topic of the show. But there are so many series that deal with grief. Well, yeah, because at the same time, people were watching The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Which I have not watched because I'm a chicken. And
2: we were we were getting like (laughs) a lot of tweets and like, are you going to have the show? Are you going to have the show? Are
0: you going to have the show? And like, we're very aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation they office is really being about, I mean, it's being in a advertised, marketed as this horror show. Mm-hmm. But when people really started talking about it, they talked about that it's a show about grief. And it's and a family drama. And how interesting that and, yeah. is to have that show about grief that you don't necessarily think at first glance that that's what it would be about. And then having the show, Sorry for Your Loss, which is absolutely about grief and mm-hmm. is being marketed that. So how how are the different shows really talking about it. And then there were a lot of other shows that kind of came up in conversation, many of which that would fit into this. But I know like BoJack Horseman was one that we had talked about at one point, which was a mm-hmm. very different show that also dealt with grief. And it's like, how do you have a conversation or what is the conversation with all these different shows dealing with it so differently? But yeah. it's something that we all deal with. And the
2: thing that, that's cool about the panel that, that ended up coming together is that you have the Slice of Life show which is Sorry for Your Loss, which is very like grounded and naturalistic and authentic. And then you have these more genre based series that are dealing with like supernatural elements and horror and all of these things that sort of, you know, orbit around the grief. But like, ultimately, it's a through line that we all identify with in one way or another. And so it doesn't really matter what genre it is. It doesn't really doesn't really matter what point of view you're telling it from. Everyone can relate to that feeling yeah. and so you get to have this very like interesting varied conversation about how these writers approach it from these drastically different ways
0: This is moderated by Daniel Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter, Mm -hmm. who is a phenomenal moderator, and we love him deeply. And then you already said Kit and Meredith are on it. Then we also had Julie Pleck, who is the creator of the Vampire Diaries, the originals, and currently Legacies, Mm -hmm. which I also deeply love. And Vampire Diaries, I mean, begins with grief. It begins with Elena, who is dealing with the death of her parents and how she struggles with that from the get-go, and then there's... Also lots of death on that show. Mm Legacy is also some of the main characters are dealing with deaths of people. It is within the past year, so I'm not going to say anything more about that. So no spoilers. And then you have Karina Adley McKenzie, who wrote on the originals, so comes from that camp, but then is a creator EP of the new Roswell, New Mexico, which also starts with a character coming back home and dealing with the death of a other character. I don't know if that's a spoiler or not because it happens in the pilot that you find out who has died, but we won't go into it. So it's a great panel from all these different directions, but before we get into this panel, Jen, I do want to know, Dan starts with this question, so I feel like we should talk about it even for just a hot second. Okay. What TV death affected you the most? Now, just to clarify, this is not what death shocked you the most because we could go on and on and on about shocking deaths, but which one, like... Had you crumpled up in a ball, in tears, heaving, had to call in sick the next day to work. (laughs) You can admit it now. (laughs) Like what, like character death really stuck with you for a long time
2: afterwards. Well, there's two main ones. Again, these are not super recent. So (laughs) if you don't don't know about these, then yeah. (laughs) The first one was, I was pretty young actually, but it was Denny from Grey's Anatomy. Yes. Which I feel like... Most people probably know the way that season two ends. You think that Izzy has saved Denny. She's done this very reckless thing. They are, you know, soulmates. It's this very intense musical moment. And then you find out that she didn't save him after all. And it was just the most devastating Shonda-esque moment where, like, I just remember spending the rest of the night crying and like trying to explain to my parents why I was so upset, <laughs> which you can't do. You it, can't, especially to
0: people that aren't watching
2: and, and haven't gone through this with a character yeah. death. Like you, they don't it's like, know. why are you, why are you crying over a middle aged <laughs> man on a TV show? Was my dad's <laughs> reaction, and uh, yeah, as a as a high schooler, it was like the most devastating thing that I you would have thought I'd ever seen. But I feel like you know that really one, it became such an iconic part of that show, and really like set the tone for a lot of TV deaths that followed, where it was like, you never know. You just never know. You could lose, you know, a character at any moment. And you especially within the world of (laughs) Seattle, Grace, Mercy, West, et cetera. But yeah, I remember being really devastated about that one. And then the second one, slightly more recent, but was Lexa on the 100, which (sighs) one was really treacherous, torturous, set off. A very intense conversation about like representation and barrier gaze and this you know trope of getting people invested in in queer female characters and then killing them off or fridging them or you know it was really it it really honestly felt like betrayal at the time but a lot of like really productive conversations came out of it and the you know the writer of that episode uh Javier Giralmarx watch like became sort of. I don't know the spearhead of of the of those conversations and like he really, really did in
0: an amazing way. Yeah. like really spoke out about what he thought was right about what happened, what he thought was wrong about what happened. The pressure of writing on a show like that and writing,
2: but you know, writing this pivotal episode, but not being the one in charge of yep. where the story's going or you know running the show. And you know, I think it made a lot of other creators and writers aware of tropes that they weren't considering moving forward. I know like when Wynona Earp came out and they had a lesbian cop on there
0: and it's like you know well it's only a matter of time until something <laughs> happens to her and they're like actually no. On Wynona Earp didn't they announced like nothing's going to happen to her. Yeah. Or they made some sort of you can invest in this because of Tara on Buffy yeah. and then Lexa on The 100 and many other characters. But they were like, no, you can actually invest in this person. We're not going to do that to you. Yeah. It's pretty amazing to have a, a writer, you know, who in theory is like has
2: free reign of these characters and can make any creative decision they want. But to be, you know, cognizant of that stuff as they're writing and sort of get out ahead of it and be like, You, the audience, can trust me because I'm not going to play into this and, like, I'm aware of this thing. Yep. So, I mean, it really, really uh, was a huge bummer at the time (laughs) and still kind of is. But but I think a lot of, like, productive conversations came out of it, which not every, you know, major TV death is significant in that way, even if they're impactful and shocking and whatever. So I think that's at least a, a cool Not cool, but uh, (laughs) a a, a positive, positive yes, yes. something that came out consequence of of that one
0: was the conversations that came after it. What were yours? Well, I mean, Denny definitely devastated me and Lexa. Yeah. Still not over. But the first one that I remember just devastating me was Joyce Summers on Buffy. Yeah. I mean, well, one, Buffy has a number of deaths, which are all devastating. And I cried during all of them, even in all of my rewatches. But Joyce, not only like the shock of her dying... But the scene, because she dies at the end of an episode or Buffy discovers her at the end of an episode where you're like, there's no way she's really dead. And then, of course, it goes into something supernatural, even though she's been sick. Something supernatural must have killed her. Buffy's going to save the day and bring her back, which is also what Buffy thinks. But then when you go into the that next episode and the scene where they're all in the living room and Anya breaks down, oh my gosh, I'm going to cry thinking about it, when Anya breaks down because she doesn't understand death and doesn't understand, like, how this could have happened. And the fact that it is the only natural death that happens on Buffy yet is just devastating and continues on as part of, obviously now, part of Buffy's storyline, but even into a few seasons later when I'm trying to think how well how much longer when Don tries to resurrect her and mm-hmm. Buffy even knowing it's wrong, like has this moment of my mom is back, even though everything about this is wrong and it's not really her. And you see that grief continuation. Yeah. I, I mean, still cry. Yeah, I did not. I was, I think, too young to watch that episode when
2: it aired. But like when I went back and watched the whole series, like I, I had already known that was yeah, a thing that right happened and was kind of like dreading getting there. And then you kind of just have to like sit in it which i feel like is is the case for definitely sorry for your loss but a lot of a lot of these series and episodes is like you just kind of have to like sit in it and let go and like the thing that stands out to me from that episode is like there's a lot of silence in it yes it's just they we're do. so we're so used to having like yep. these big swelling musical numbers over these dramatic moments and deaths and and all of that and like the thing that is really like sticks with me from that episode is like how empty everything feels it's just dead air emptiness nobody knowing how to like fill that space that is the feeling of loss like that is it's like there's a
0: vacuum and that episode i think does that really well you feel the devastation yeah you have to feel it and you have to go through it yeah another one is opie on sons of anarchy i mean a lot of characters die on yeah. sons of anarchy opie is jack's Charlie Hannum's best friend. Mm -hmm. And the way he dies, it's basically, it's just, you're hopeless in the situation. Like, you, uh, I didn't know it was coming at all. And then in the moment, because it's also one of those shows where you think, especially the main, main characters, like, they're going to get out of the bad situation. Yeah. They're going to. This is, we're not quite in Game of Thrones territory where we're like, everyone's going to die just a matter of time. But it was like, they're going to get out of it. And they're in this moment, like, actually in prison. And... You are like, how is he going to get out of this? How? And Jax is watching him through a mirror or not a mirror, but through a window and Jax like can't get to him. And you see it coming and then it just, it happens. And it is that hopelessness is devastating. And that feeling just sticks with you for many episodes to come. And actually, I mean, through the rest of the series, but man, that was one didn't see it coming at all. Didn't know that I loved and cared about these bikers that much. And was devastated. And then the other one, have you ever watched Dance Academy? No. Have you ever heard of Dance Academy? Yeah. Probably for you, though. (laughs) That is very fair. So there's a show called Dance Academy that's from Australia. I watched it all on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there or not. But it's this half hour show about these kids, teenagers at the Sydney Ballet Institute should know more information. A bunch of my friends and I watch the show, love it deeply, and one of the characters dies towards the end in this freak accident, and it is devastating. It is one of those, it comes out of nowhere. It's probably, I'm assuming, I've never watched Degrassi, even though I know I should have, but I'm yeah. sure Degrassi has like these oh, yeah. some, like random deaths, but it's like, so not the show at yeah. all. And then this character dies, and I mean, I am sobbing for hours to the point that I'm like, you have to leave you have to leave your house. you have yeah. to go out and walk around and like be around people because I just couldn't stop crying. yeah after this character dies and then the episode of well, the characters finding out about it and the funeral and how they handle it, it's tough because then as each character is told the news, mm-hmm. you just like waves of it all again, which is the worst. yeah, I mean, only to be superseded by the good wife. Yeah. Which I know they also talk about in this episode of that was also one where I cried so hard. And I even knew it was coming because I watched it later. Yeah. That I had to force myself out of my apartment and I had to walk around Target for like an hour. And Just the internet, getting myself to calm down. Yeah. And the internet fully spoiled that one like almost immediately after it happened. Well, because everyone was so shocked. Yeah. That was the thing. I don't think anyone even knew that they were spoiling it because everyone was so stunned. Yeah. That was. And that, that's another one where they, you like, you learn
2: or you watch Everyone sort of, like, learn about it in this really devastating way. And it's just, like, it keeps happening over and over where you're just, like, oh, now this person has to know.
0: And now this person has to know. And now it's just, like... And each person having to deal with it and having to, like, actually go in and almost look at the body before they would actually recognize and be able to admit that he was gone. Yeah. So besides talking about (laughs) a lot of famous death scenes on TV, this panel's really... A really great look at grief and how grief does bring people together and how different people deal with it and how you deal with it in different times and different places and a lot of different types of it, which I think is amazing. Yeah, this is like a very personal panel for a lot of the people
2: on it. Shout out to them for being very like open and, and vulnerable and really talking about like how they personally process their own grief and, and how that finds its way into the their shows and, you know, even the their writers who have really gone through trauma and loss and bring that with them and you really sort of realize like how you know again regardless of genre or character or whatever like a lot of these stories are are coming from a very personal place and they recognize that like it is I think Julie at one point says that you know grief is the great unifier like we all we all feel it at some point and we all process it differently and that comes out in a lot of the media that we consume And these shows are doing something
0: really interesting with that. So without further ado, here is Grief and the Messiness of Loss. Also don't forget to stay tuned where Kate interviews Meredith Averill afterwards and Podcast HQ.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on a beautiful Saturday afternoon to talk about death. Um, (laughs) Can I get a show of hands of how many people were at the mental illness panel before? Oh my goodness. That is a lot of overlap. You guys are my favorite people. Uh, (laughs) We really do have a wonderful panel, so let's get them out right now. Up first, the creator of Sorry for Your Loss, Kit Steinkellner. co showrunner and producer on The Haunting of Hill House, Meredith Avril. The dwayne of Vampire Diaries, The Originals, and Legacies, Julie Pleck. <laughs> and the creator of Roswell, New Mexico, Karina Adley-McKenzie. <laughs> These chairs feel too comfortable for the purpose. No, because if we were, you know, if we were sitting Shiva or something, you, you wouldn't be able to sit on the comfortable chair. So it's a, it's a whole thing. Um, I, I am struck looking at the... Composition of this panel that writing. Men are never
4: sad, <laughs> apparently.
3: <laughs> that writing sensitively about this subject matter might in some way be gendered to some degree. And I don't know that I would have necessarily thought that was true. Do you guys feel, you know, you've been in writers' rooms where you've had to discuss this subject matter? Are women more in touch with their feelings? Am I going to be unable to have this conversation at all because of chromosomes, et cetera?
4: Yeah, I'm going to moderate now. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm just here as the comic relief <laughs> for the grief panel. Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, um, my showrunning partner, Chris Hollier, is like the most sensitive human being I've ever met. He's far more sensitive than I am. I don't think that it's a gendered thing.
5: Yeah, I also, my co-showrunner on The Haunting, who created the show, Mike Flanagan, also incredibly sensitive. So, yeah, I, 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 would, I wouldn't, I and our makeup was 50-50 women and men in our room, so.
3: So, okay, I want to start with sort of a general thing, getting outside of your individual shows. Each of you talk about a TV death that impacted you in a personal, emotional way.
6: Ooh. Will
4: Gardner on The Good Wife. I grieved like I knew him. I, I went to work the next, first of all, I stayed up all night after watching the episode where, where Will Gardner got shot, like all night, texting people being like, what do we do? And then I went to work and it was my first time on the original set. So my first time on a set as a writer. And I'm like looking around like, how are people working? Will Gardner is dead. <laughs> Devastated.
1: Um, I, this probably isn't the most profound death on television I experienced ever, but I, one of my greatest ugly cries was in the episode of, like, season two of 24, when you think Jack Bauer has to take the nuclear bomb and, like, do the suicide mission, and he calls his daughter, Kim, and she's just escaped, like, the mountain lion or something, and... and <laughs> And he's like, Goodbye, honey, I love you. She's like, Dad, I love you. Yeah. And it's like so powerful and so beautiful. And then at the last second, George Mason, whatever the guy's name was, like the the second in command takes one for the team and goes down instead of Jack Bauer and it's like this beautiful <laughs> sad tragic um, uh, sacrifice that he makes in the name of like of good and patriotism and his own redemption and and it's just it was an incredible moment and, and I remember just weeping and feeling so moved by one the near miss of a father and daughter relationship that was about to be cut short and to the idea of redemption in the name of this man who had made some choices that he wasn't proud of and that he felt like this could be the thing Thing that would make it all right, and I just love stuff like that always. I'd have to say Nate Fisher,
5: oh, yeah. oh definitely Aww. Nate Fisher. Narm, narm. Remember, <laughs> remember, narm. It and it was so shocking, and it was before like there were you know it was before Twitter, where you know the 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 with these deaths would start you would start to get spoilers or you would start to see it coming. It was just such a
4: shocking, impactful death. I feel like uh, Twitter is like a is like a. a Grief counts like Ooh, I, yes. I, like I would die without Twitter to like <laughs> to like convene with after no. these deaths. Yeah.
7: <laughs> I can't believe this one hasn't been taken yet, but Joyce Summers on Buffy, oh yeah, I, absolutely um, and what I will say specifically about that was. Uh, I had w- never seen a, a lot on TV before that I saw on Buffy for the first time, but specifically um, the awkwardness of grieving being one... I mean, I, I, I will always remember Willow's monologue about what she should wear and just that awkwardness of being one degree removed. That, um, God, that that kind of fantasy sequence Buffy has where for like a quick 20 seconds, her mom isn't dead and, and, and um, the EMTs got to her in time. Um, so yes, I mean, it was... That death, it was specifically how it impacted every single human and non-human on that show.
3: (laughs) Well, it's it's Anya's reaction that kills me every time in that episode. It's that she doesn't understand because she has no way of processing it. I honestly would have guessed we'd have multiple answers for the body. Um, Talking about that episode in specific, it sort of does a great job of showing how you can handle this where it can be devastating, but also... It's also funny. It's it's funny in these horrible ways where it's you don't know why you're laughing. You don't know if you should be laughing for each of you as you're writing. Where is the part in the process when you realize if you need something else, like if it's going to be too heavy? Is it something that happens in the writer's room? Is it something that happens when you're on set editing? Yeah. Where does it happen?
7: Look for us, um, and I know I'm on a panel of genre ladies who I, I admire deeply, um, but we are um, Sorry for Your Loss is a slice of life show, and authenticity is our watchword. And so, I mean, look, I've said this a bunch of times in our writer's room, I'll say it here, I have never laughed harder than when I was um, at a funeral or awake or at a hospital waiting for bad news. Because sometimes it's all you can do. It's I, it's, I almost don't even know what to do with the... Um, <laughs> With just like the void in my gut, but laugh, uh, and so it it for me it wouldn't feel honest if it wasn't funny because that's just never been my experience for me. Pain and humor have gone hand in hand.
1: Well, humor is often the thing that that keeps you. It, it releases you right before you tip into melodrama, um, and the perfect example of that is is what Steel Magnolia is, right? Yeah. Where Sally Fields, others like, I if I can my daughter's dead, and I can't. I want to hit somebody, and, and it's like, Here, hit her. <laughs> <laughs> Weezer's like, What? Take a wagon, Weezer, you know? And like, suddenly you go from what was becoming a fairly histrionic, if not over the top, moment in performance, and, and, and cutting it with that humor. Just the audience needs that release. It's like horror, same thing. If you have tension for so long, you have to release it with a scare or a laugh. Grief is the same way. You can't just wallow in it uh, because that's not story, you know? This. Is not a narrative; it's just a existence. It's also like not really realistic.
4: I think that that every time that I've been in what feels like the depths of grief that that can feel unsurmount unsurmountable, there's always a laugh somewhere. And I think that the complexity of do I feel guilty about the fact that I just laughed is also a, a thing that's interesting to explore on screen. You know, like the 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 lighthearted moments still come because you're still living your life and and often when you're grieving you're surrounded by friends and family often that you haven't seen for a long time people that you really love and there is a joy in that the circumstances are always shitty but like you're glad to be around the people that you love and then you laugh and then you're like oh god what did I just do? <laughs> I think that there's some fun in exploring that moment, too.
7: And people in pain can be very annoying, and that is funny, too. <laughs> I, I count myself among the people that can be very annoying in pain.
3: Well, Meredith, it doesn't, as we were saying, need to be a, a humorous thing. So when, it, when it's horror that you're adding, or when it's a scare that you're adding, how do you sort of punctuate that? Because you wrote the, uh, the Bent Neck Lady episode, and that's about as, yeah, I mean, that, that's an episode that is so painful. And then the follow-up episode also, but also terrifyingly painful. So how do you balance that?
5: Honestly, I would approach it the same way, whether it was a horror show or not. And that's kind of how we approached everything with that show, is that it's a family drama that just happens to have ghosts. So I think that, you know it was treated the same way despite, you know, with the supernatural elements. And it's amazing that you can use genre to be able to kind of tackle these, these issues, but you always also have that protection of the genre a little bit too. And, you know, the idea that Nell was a character who was haunted by her own mind, her entire life was very powerful emotionally to us, and so when you know Mike Flanagan had the idea that she would see a like a physical manifestation of that haunting her entire life, that it would follow her. I mean, I th- thought that that just worked so beautifully, um, and it, it was a, a really powerful performance by our actors as well. And I think that that episode works really well, not just because of the scares, but because it's, it moves you so much. It's so emotional.
3: And, uh, now, Kit, I would say the probably of you know the shows that we have represented here, yours is the only one that has to actually be pitched as a show about death. Mm-hmm. How do people respond when you go around saying, I've got this show, it's about grieving, it's sometimes funny, put it on TV? <laughs> uh,
7: well, um, I, I wrote the pilot in 2013, so it's six years ago now. And it was a real uphill climb. And it was so interesting because I, I wrote it, Um, I'm sure most of you guys are familiar-ish with TV terminology, but I wrote it on spec versus pitching it, which means you write the first episode versus you speak about it for 15 minutes. And um, it was a really interesting process where there were so many people who were so kind about the script and said they loved it, but they just didn't know how to position it, which is code for we don't think... Networks will buy a sh- show that feels depressing and bleak, and some people were actually the people I appreciated the most. The producers I appreciated the most were the people that actually said that, and I asked. I always asked them, "Do you think the pilot is depressing and bleak?" And they would say, well, "No, no, no, it's so funny and romantic and nuanced." And I'm like, "But the pilot is is the blueprint for the show, and the show will be those things too." But um, but it just it, you know even the idea of a half hour drama wasn't really a, a term until this year. Um, Making death the, the focal point, um, and without having any kind of um, other entry point, um, yeah, people just didn't quite know what to do with it, and so it just took a, um, a team of, of people that collected on the way. I, I'm, um, my non-writing producer, Robin Schwartz of Big Beach, who was just like, oh, "I'm going to make this show. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen." Um, uh, Lizzie Olson, who plays our, our, um, our lead Lee, um, same thing. She's like, "I have to play this part." And there were just enough people that felt like they had to do it. And um, and then Facebook Watch, which is our home, um, they both loved the show, and they also felt like they were uniquely suited to, um, to be the platform for a show about death. Because I don't know about you guys, but I cannot remember the last time that I found out about someone um, dying, and it wasn't on Facebook. By the way, someone being born, and it wasn't on Facebook. Someone getting married. I mean, it, it is this, I think, the largest public square in human history. And Facebook really made the case um, that they were the right place to have this discussion. Um, they also gave us a straight to series order, which was, <laughs> <laughs> so both those things, um, uh, kind of went hand in hand in making that decision. Did
5: mm-hmm. they ever give you notes? Like, can you inject a little more levity into this? Or were they like really on board always with the tone? that Yeah, you were- they
7: were on board the tone. It was interesting. Um, uh, we did, and this is public knowledge. We did, um, a, uh, uh, around with a, a cable network first and we actually and it, we actually did get that note of like Ooh, it's gonna be because it is a half hour so like mm, can we is there and something I did I did a, a humor pass and I really tried to make a g- grounded humor but um again I, I gave it to you know and has been hand in hand with me this, this, whole, this whole way through and she's just like this isn't the show like I can feel the sweat and I don't feel the sweat in the original version we can't turn this in and I was like you're right I felt sweaty <laughs> writing it too um no Facebook was always very supportive of the tone um where they've I think been a little encouraging in a good way is um look we are a slice of life show and so sometimes when they ask us to um just ratchet things up a little bit and they never want us to we're not we're not a soap and they're not asking us to be a soap but they ask, it's like, well, can we be a little more dramatic the way life is a little more dramatic? And and that's been honestly inspiring and helpful. So, but no, no, no in humor And it's weird. I'm I'm so I'm second generation. My parents are comedy writers. So it's it's always funny to me, like it's in funny of to them too. Um I, I weirdly always have the inclination to kind of like joke things up a little bit too. But um, but it's um, you know, it's like, I mean, you guys all know this, like you're each TV shows its own creature and you're just trying to m- help it realize its potential and make it exactly what it's supposed to be versus things get a little muddy and, and, and weird when you try to make it something that's not supposed yeah. to be.
3: Now, I'm kind of that asshole who walked out of the uh, Avengers Affinity War and everyone was crying all around me. Oh, I can't believe that person died or whatever. And I'm like, come on. They introduce time travel. People come back to life all the time, whatever. So for you guys who work in a space where reincarnation is always a possibility, where... <laughs> <laughs> no, where, where people can come back as vampires, people can come back as doppelgangers, people can come back as almost anything. How do you make a death that actually sticks emotionally when your audience knows you can undo it four weeks later?
1: I have to follow my instincts as a fan. You know, um when I watch TV and I see somebody die and I know that people can come back to life and I know that, you know, death isn't always permanent on television and and, and I still have an incredibly powerful emotional experience watching that character die. And then I am still like, Thank fucking God excuse my language, when when Jon Snow is brought back to life, you know, it's like when What? It, it, <laughs> and so I think I think audiences like to go on an emotional journey. I think, for, like for myself, I like television commercials, movies, movie trailers, and books are my outlet for my own inner emotional life. I'm not easily able to express myself emotionally in real time <laughs> with real grief or real trauma. And so to be able to have a crying fit in the movie theater or on the couch and to like to lose my shit over emotionally over a fictional story because i see and feel something that makes me feel emotional i i like that as a fan and i want to be able to give that to other people so it's in a way not even about me exercising my own demons although sometimes it is but it's about saying like i know everybody out there needs a reason to cry you know and if if i can get the people who say oh i never cry if i can get them to cry then like we've won because it's it, being able to express your deepest self, and and not have to bottle it up, and not have to hold it in, is is really healing. And um, and so I got a lot of criticism on the Vampire Diaries because you know from the critical point of view, and like the um, you know anybody that would be like evaluating the show in its yeah, <laughs> in its in its run um, it you know death some would say ceased to matter, and yet damned if every time we killed somebody, whether we brought them back or not. Did I not get an outpouring of either like rage, <laughs> like like how dare you, how could you, or deep beautiful emotion? And those feelings were very real for the audience. Um, and so I just started saying like, do I want this death to be permanent? Because permanent death is really sad. It's really really sad. And if I can create this world called peace which is your own version of heaven whatever you want to call it when and if i can create peace and people can find their way there and we can all say hey they had a good life and look now they get to have a great life in peace you know like i'm good with that and so all these vampires who are eternal beings who you know who who were looking for sort of the meaning of their own existence to be able to like put them on a path towards peace felt really good for me. So by the end of the run, being able to deliver a lot of them there and say, yes, they're dead, but uh, it felt like a felt to me like a very pleasing way to both feel that emotional journey, but also not carry that sadness um, past that.
4: I'll say that, you know, one, I learned everything I know from her. So but I I, I kind of disagree with you on the, the or disagreed with you uh, on the peace thing sometimes. And on the when we were crafting the finale of the originals, it was really important to me that we not see Klaus and Elijah post-death in peace, that we leave that question for the audience of did these men redeem themselves enough to get to heaven? Um, and I felt really strongly that that was the difference between the originals and the Vampire Diaries, is that I want to see Stefan Salvatore in peace. I want to see him and his brother reunited one day. I don't know. I, I couldn't wrap my head around the idea, like, did we do enough on the originals to make these people who, the, the, these vampires who had been mass murdering for a thousand years in the name of their family, redeemed. And I really like, I really liked that you listened to me. I remember you. I remember being in the room and being like, but but but, and you being like, I know. We're, gonna, we're not going to do it. It's OK. <laughs> well, but,
1: but I will say this, and I stand by that completely. One series I ended and gave everybody the happy ending. The second series I ended, and I thought the ending was beautiful and emotional. 100%. And poetic and uh, stunning and all those things. But boy, oh boy, now we are now two full years later, and I am still in trouble. Like, I <laughs> am in trouble. The The fan base... Feels robbed and cheated. Not all of them. A lot of them are like, "Hey, way to go!" But you know, the v- vocal parts of the family, robbed and cheated and betrayed, and like I have somehow like dishonored the character. So it's sort of like what happened. Yeah, Game but of now Thrones. I just said that I did it. Yeah, so, so now it's- <laughs> we know who to blame. Um, anyway, point is, is like in that in that moment, I made a decision as a writer and not as a fan. And as a writer, I said we don't have to, you know we collectively said, we don't have to know the ending for everybody because wondering what's coming next for them is as important sometimes as ending their journey. And uh, yeah, I don't even know how I got to that, but that is, uh, the audience is, their ride on the grief roller coaster. for me is it's important to be able to have like a sort of conducting hand in that experience.
3: Does it make a difference if you know as you're writing it that they really are coming back five episodes later? Because I assume some people you killed off and you didn't know if you'd ever work them back into the series, but others you killed off knowing they'd be back almost immediately.
1: I don't remember everybody that we killed because we killed a lot of people, but I, <laughs> I prefer the deaths that are real deaths and then I prefer to miss that person and decide to bring them back mm-hmm. as opposed to the fake out just in general. I'm sure I've done some fake outs And I'm sure somebody could list 10 of them right now. But like, just as my own instincts, I'd much, much, much rather not go for the cheap shock. Mm -hmm. And like, what did I just see that made me so angry? It was like, it was somebody died and they went through this incredibly, oh, fucking Superman. The Batman versus Superman. That's not a swear word. They died. They go through the montage. It's the burial. They're like in the ground and everything. And at the very end, they're like, but he's coming back. And I was like, well, screw you. Don't, Don't give me the heaviness of the death if you're not going to deliver if you're going to immediately then tell me oh but by the way everything's going to be fine skip the skip the music moments and the and the sad parts it's just so interesting hearing you talk about <laughs> no no no
7: everything it's interesting hearing you talk about everything but specifically um i just keep thinking about and i, I wish i was getting the part of the brain right that i'm going to talk about but essentially that um Um, When you experience any kind of heartbreak, including a divorce or a breakup, the same part of your brain is activated when you lose a person. And so I'm just kind of I'm kind of playing out the thought experiment that like maybe dying but not really dying on a show like this is sort of a a bit of a metaphor for a breakup. It's like that person is gone but not gone. They're still
1: they could come back, but you're never going to have them the way you you did have them. Well, and that's exactly the point of this, right? Which is it's not about death. It's about grief, right? It's loss begets grief. Grief is the existence that you live in for an indeterminate amount of time. The tools of managing grief range from alcohol (laughs) to therapy to Bambi to Steel Magnolias to Game of Thrones, whatever. Like it's to friendship and wine, you know. And we are sort of the arbiters of those tools as storytellers. And most storytellers probably are writing from a place of either trauma, loss, loss of love, loss of a parent, loss of a child, all that.
3: Well, you mentioned the sort of reactions, and I feel like for an awful lot of people, religion is one, and you didn't mention that there. And I think it is notable that all of your shows, they aren't really addressing that, and I'm kind of curious why that. Is And if that's sort of a product of the American TV system that we feel like we don't want to go down a Judeo-Christian, Muslim, et cetera, path with this, even though I think for most people, either positively or negatively, religion comes into play in those circumstances.
4: On my show, it does. Um, On on Roswell, the, uh, you know, we start off with our lead character. She's lost her sister 10 years ago. And so the initial sort of like sting of grief is gone, but on the anniversary of her sister's death, she does, she goes to church and she starts to pray and then she feels stupid because she's a scientist and she can't reconcile those parts of her brain. And there's a lot of sort of like religion, religious metaphor at least built into, into the show. And I think that um, in my own life experience, the most profound example of why religion is good Has been seeing my family use it to survive unimaginable things, and I'm not particularly. uh, It doesn't work that way for me, really. But like my grandfather is a very devout Muslim, and after my grandfather grandmother died, there was a sort of there still remains a, a strong faith in him in what comes next, and so the. He, was, he has been able to go on in a way that I didn't think he would. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. And I'm actually in season two of my show. It's something that uh, is about to come into, into the light a lot more, um, which I'm excited about. I'm excited to explore that side of things that, um, to me, makes organized religion almost worth it. <laughs>
5: It was interesting. Uh, when our very first week in the haunting of Hill House writers' room, we uh, asked the question: Okay, do we believe, Who here believes in ghosts? We just talked about ghosts, and we found that there was a direct corollary between whether that you believe that ghosts exist and whether you believe that God exists. And that may not be true for everyone, but it was found to be true in our room. Um, one of our writers, who is an atheist doesn't fucking believe in ghosts, no way, they're not there. I'm agnostic, so I was like, maybe, I don't know. Um, and, and those of the writers who were deeply religious felt absolutely that they're... That, and so we made that a part of the show, very much so, that, that, that there is a corollary there, and there's a great line that Mike wrote in there, that a ghost is a wish. And in some ways, that religion and all of it, that it, it all is sort of a part of it, and it, that also related to the ways in which the characters
1: reaped. I, I. It's so funny that my just got chills when you said that. It's so sweet, you know, because I, in, in creating things like you know, witch purgatory and you know, and and peace and all that, I came out the other side of my writing realizing like what I've done is I've created my own. If only you know, that yeah. if if I were, re- like, devoutly religious, I would be blessed in this way to believe that when someone goes, that I will be joined with them again. And what a beautiful idea, you know, and and with all my sort of stubborn agnosticism in my life and refusal of, you know, of organized religion in that same way, like, I don't have that. So I live in fear of death and I live in fear of losing someone and all those things um, because I don't have the hope for the rest. So a lot of what I do when I write is I create that hope for other people, you know, my characters, and, and as an extension of that myself, like, oh, look, there's a, there's a place where we all get to run free in the, in the fields and dance with the unicorns, you know, like, and, and it's somehow been an incredible, like, wish fulfillment all you for me, mm-hmm. um, that when I really stop and think about what I don't have in my life, it's, it's that kind of um, just beautiful belief in, in what comes next.
3: Well, is it sort of then the difference between faith and religion, I guess? Because it feels like you're speaking to it being a, a faith issue, not a religion issue. And yeah. I'm kind of...
1: And, it, and it, for me, it, I've been able to sort of say, well, if we're all little particles and we just dissolve and in, disintegrate into particles, then maybe enough of my particles will make it somewhere that will be happy. And then, that's how I've come to terms with it all. But I guess that's a different panel.
4: <laughs>
3: Kit, did you have a an particle answer?
1: panel.
7: <laughs> No, I was just going to say, it's so interesting because you're right. In the first season of our show, um, religion and faith, we touched upon it a little bit in two episodes, but really lightly. Um, the same cannot be said for the second season, which we just started, uh, shared production on 201 this week. Uh, and look, I think it's, it's thematic for us. Uh, when something impossible happens to you, the, um, the love of your life, your person dies or, or, you know, you deal with any kind of insane pain and trauma, um, for our, our writers and for me, it feels like other impossible things feel more possible that, you know, the person you were not only is your person dead, but the person you used to be is dead. You know, that house has been burned to the ground and um, you can kind of build anything on that raised foundation, which is both terrifying and liberating. Um, but we, we we do we do dabble in religion this season. So
3: <laughs> Now, I know. Kip, that you guys have had advisors because mm-hmm. you're obviously talking about this in a much more serious way, or maybe not much more serious, wrong word, much more direct. How about that? Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about what you've had in terms of advisors and experts talking about grief and grieving and how people go through it.
7: Yeah, we have a great advisor, uh, Dr. Scott Irwin, who I, this is a, uh, I'll just say, I, I call him Dr. Hollywood in our, <laughs> it's not his official title. Uh, he's at Cedar Sinai. Um, he has a lot of experience and, um, Dealing people, uh, dealing with clients and patients, rather dealing with uh, grief and trauma and addiction, which is all stuff that we deal with in our show. Uh, and he just, I mean, look, our room is really emotionally intelligent. We're, we've got a lot of life experience between the seven of us, um, and it really helps to have uh, him sort of, I guess, fact check us from a clinical perspective. So it's, you know, we'll say, okay, well, this feels. When you hit rock bottom, this feels true to us and true to our experience. And then he'll give us his clinical perspective, which is um, y- often supporting what we already thought, but sometimes like really adding a layer or a wrinkle we didn't in- intend. He's um, he's great with metaphors too. He just, <laughs> you get a lot of really good metaphors from Dr. Irwin. Um, but uh, it's just, it's really helpful to have somebody who's, um, jo- whose job it is to deal with these issues in a very clinical way um support us like dreamy weirdo
1: writers
3: have you 3 had any experts or do you trust the experience of the writers in the room
1: life experience yeah. baby yeah life i experience. feel like i'm an expert on grief yeah. so
4: we 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 consult with um uh advocacy groups for immigrants and uh, like lgbtq issues and stuff but no not about grief um i feel like one we're really lucky we've got extremely talented actors i'm not just saying that because i feel like they're here somewhere Um, but we we really we really have have uh actors who like julie and i can sit down and talk to and who really tap into what we're trying to do um without making it feel like it's a melodrama um but no i i mean i wasn't gonna talk about this but I, i i experienced a loss very early on in the roswell process like right when we sort of had started shooting the main part of the season and the writing became very cathartic for me and I really felt like I was just speaking about maybe one experience, like maybe how I experience grief, which is okay, I think. I don't think that you necessarily have to be like teaching a lesson with every story. But now I'm curious as to what the clinical people would say. Oh, and I have asked my therapist sometimes and she'll be like, no, 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 Karina, we're talking about you and your problems, not Liz Orteco. This is like, I'm not on that clock.
7: (laughs) I mean, look. What I will say is, um, like, we will ask specifically. This, you know, this is a white woman in, in her late 20s. She lives in Los Angeles, and and he'll never, you know, obviously there's um, there's patient doctor confidentiality. He would never speak out of school, but with his experience, he he can really speak to, um, you know, what that specific person, what he's, you know, who deals with all the with all the factors that that person deals with, um, what he's observed in addition to just kind of his PhD and all things he has a PhD in.
5: I consulted with my therapist during my own therapy session, so I think I paid
4: her uh, I quote my therapist that. in yes, my show. I know. <laughs> nice. She's like, kid, yeah, I saw that. And I'm like, The lesson Cheers. of
3: this panel is is awesome. Yes. yes. Highly yes. recommend it. <laughs> well, but along those lines, Meredith, uh, the Haunting of Hill House, it brings a lot of subtext to the surface and it's not just grief it's also mental illness it's also addiction etc did you treat those other factors differently like did you look for more expertise in other trauma fields or were you okay with your therapist I just advising this, on all at the it?
5: mental illness panel you should have been there no i'm kidding um
3: and i forgot it. at least of the room paycheck
5: yeah. i mean you know we had a, a wonderful writer's room with a lot of life experience and i made sure to make it a really safe and healthy environment open environment where people felt that they could share their own experiences so that really was our quote-unquote sort of research. And, um, and I told this story to the previous panel. So for those who were there, you know, I apologize. But we had a writer on our staff who uh, is a recovering um, addict, uh, heroin addict, and we had a character on our show who's also recovering heroin addict and you know he shared a lot of his stories with us in the room and was very he's very open about this fact and he's long long been in recovery um and but there you know was a moment where I was writing my episode and there's a scene where one of the um characters is shooting heroin into his into his foot And having never done that myself, I needed to consult with someone on what does that look like? What does that feel like? How do you ramp up into that? Like, just like the physical pieces of what is it? How does that work? And so I called this writer and, you know, I I had to say to him before, like, feel free to please tell me if this is not something you're comfortable telling, because the last thing I want to do is trigger him in any way. Um, But he really wanted to share it because he wanted there to be an authenticity to what that experience is, and to see it on screen in that way. Um, And so we, that was sort of our research. And of course, if we felt like we weren't getting what we needed in the room to make the stories feel authentic, we would go outside. But luckily, we had a a room with a wealth of life experience.
3: And uh, Kate, you mentioned Elizabeth Olsen, and Karina was just talking about her cast. And, And it seems like a lot of this obviously has to hang on the actors you have. And if you miscast anyone, you know, a, a bad reaction in a situation like this can pretty much kill a show. You know, someone who can't pull it off. How do you know when you have actors who can actually sell this? And once you know you do, do you start heaping pain upon them, I guess?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because it's like a double-edged sword, right? So you have actors who can cry beautifully and expose themselves instantly and in Raw. Like, Janine, can you say, I say, Janine, you know, it's like, like I need, I need your... I need your tear to drop from this eye on this line facing that camera and she does it. Like and it's ridiculous. But Leah Pipes on the originals could was like do that. that. Yeah. But uh, the and Kayla Ewell and Vampire Diaries could do that. The problem is that then crying becomes the go-to. And as we all know about, one, drama, and two, real life, you're not always going to express, let your emotions express themselves through tears. In fact, sometimes you shouldn't or you can't. And so then it becomes about reining the talent in and saying, no, 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 don't go to your default. We know you're good at that. But now let's see how good you are at not expressing yourself without that. On Roswell, I had... um Nathan Parsons, who's
4: our lead actor, called me about a very early script and was like, I don't want to cry this much. And I was like, you're not crying that much. And then I re- reread the script and I was like, oh, it says he tears up in like three different scenes in one episode, and I was like, okay, fair. And then I started never writing that he was tearing up, ever. But he still would go to it, and he still at the end of the season had to be like, all right, no more cowboy crying. <laughs> because when you're good at it, you're really, really good at it. Yeah. Um, and I think that also, uh, I personally, you, you learn to write to your actors' skills, but I think you also, in order to keep them enjoying their lives and enjoying their jobs, you want to write to challenge them. Um, I think of writing to Danielle Campbell on the originals when she when her boyfriend died, when uh, Daniel Sharman's version of Cole died. And we hadn't really seen her. S- back to
1: life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
4: yeah. But but it was really emotional when it happened. And we hadn't necessarily. We it was um it was an interesting thing because we hadn't necessarily seen her fall apart like we needed her to. And so, but issuing her the challenge, uh, really, she did a, a, an incredibly beautiful job. And it was it was cool to sort of like see what it takes to get somebody there. And I think that that's part of. The fun of collaborating with actors—I love it.
3: How about you, Meredith?
4: I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? <laughs>
5: Just—I was so
3: engulfed in her answer that I was just... just. about knowing what your actors can do, and then heaping pain on them once they re- once you realize what they can do. Because the cast of your show—it's—it's a—it's a mix of people we definitely know, and some actors who maybe we yeah. don't, and yet they can pretty much all sob very well. At
5: oh so. yeah, no. I mean, I think for us also, with you know, talking about how they would also you know, grieve their, their, well, there are several deaths throughout The Haunting of Hill House, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, we get to see how each of uh, these siblings learn that their sister has died. Um, And we chose very specifically that we wanted to have very different reactions that they would have in that moment. And those reactions would be tied to character, And so, you know, we, so that was also very, that was helpful in the room to have, to be able to show how someone grieves, but also be able to use that as a way to reveal character. Um, And, uh, you know, my favorite reaction of all of them, and this came out of something very real that one of our writers had done when he he had gotten a phone call that someone had committed suicide, he just started laughing, someone in his life that he was very close with, he just started laughing because he was so ridiculous. Like, you know, this idea that this person that is crazy. And so Shirley, played by Elizabeth Reeser, when she gets the phone call that that her sister has died, she, you see that. She says, well, shut the fuck up. She starts laughing. And we thought that that was a really interesting way to kind of to show that for her. Um, and yeah, that's how we kind of approached it.
3: Um, Kid, if you could talk about Elizabeth Olsen, but I want to make sure yes. that people who have questions, uh, we're going to open it up in a minute. So if you want to at least see where the microphone is and be prepared to move to it. We'll get there in a minute.
7: Yeah, no, L- look, my relationship with Lizzie Olson is is unlike any other relationship I I have. I mean, we are colleagues technically, but because we each contain um I don't know if anyone remembers those, like those best friend necklaces from the 90s with like <laughs> a, a broken heart, but it's like we each have one half of this character's heart, and so. Uh, yes, we are colleagues and coworkers, but like just the way we work on this person is so deep and profound, um, and she's extraordinary. There's nothing she can't do. Um, but we had a very E.T. and Elliot relationship, I guess both seasons, but this season, um, we both, this past season, season one was about um, the metaphor we used um, for my genre ladies over here is it's like this character crash landed on another planet. And, and just her goal for season one is just to, yeah, but no, it's like, it's like you're living on a different planet that looks just like this planet that you, you always lived on only your husband's dead. And so her goal for season one is just to like get herself out of that spaceship wreckage, make sure her oxygen tank is working and just like get to that crater over there. It's survival. And like, we both felt that in a profound way that, Just having to survive. And it was, um, God, it was the joy of my life making that show, uh, making this show season one. But it was incredibly painful. And what we and this thing she started talking about towards the end of the season. And I realized she was so right was she was feeling, you know, from behind the character's eyeballs that, like, it was time to not move on. We both hate that phrase. It's so incredibly, I think, disrespectful and, and 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 false and wrong, but move forward. Um, it was time to rebuild the spaceship. And so this is what this season is about, rebuilding the spaceship. And I think it's just so interesting. Um, we I, I, Everything I see her feeling uh, on set and as we do table reads and figuring out this story and this character, I, I feel too, which is um, it's not light or easy moving forward and rebuilding, but there is something uh, so propulsive and cathartic about it. So I, I will say it's... Um, I think what she and I both needed—we couldn't spend another season um, with a broken spaceship on an on a abandoned planet. You know, like and which isn't to say that this season is going again. It's not going to be light or easy at all. There's a lot of pain in this season. There's going to be a lot. Of, as long as we get to keep making the show, there will be pain. But we just both felt. Again, we each um, have a half this character. And we both felt instinctively that this character need to start putting the pieces back together. So it's um, so it's that's been fun. It's fun to put pieces back together.
4: I like what you said about, like, as long as the show's on, there's going to be pain. I I often get, like, tweets and, and DMs from fans being like, are they ever just going to be happy? And I'm like, I think you should watch someone else's show. Uh, <laughs> because, like, the thing, when it comes down to it, and not to, like, be like, well, in conclusion, but, like, grief is such a universal experience, but the way that we process it is so personal and so individual that it's always going to be something great to write about and great to perform. It's always going to be something that you that taps into something that you either um, that's either very much on the surface for you that's easy to tap into, which is great as a writer, but there's also something great as a writer to get to the shit that you don't want to touch. And I think that grief is always one of those two things when you're writing and I would assume also when you're acting. um, And so I don't think I'm ever going to have a show that doesn't involve it in one way or another. I think we've been talking about death a lot on this panel, but like the grief of a bad breakup or the grief of, you know, especially the loss of uh, like a friend breakup is something that's like, it's a profound thing to
1: explore. And I love it. Well, I mean, you love it. (laughs) I I live in it. It's it's all I do. And, you know, I just disguise it really well. But You know, Disney movies, 90% of them launch from the death of a parent. You know, if you look at the Zeitgeist. Superheroes, exactly. If you look at the Zeitgeist right now, and I am not even thinking how long this list can be, but off the top of my head, you have Dead to Me, which is literally about grief because it's a woman that's just lost her husband and uh, and a friendship that's born out of that. You have Fleabag, which disguises itself as being about, like, trying to, like, Crack out of your crazy millennial party days and stop having a lot of sex and just get on with your life. But it is deeply about grief and loss and trauma and 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 what hole that creates and what needs to be filled. Game of Thrones was launched on the beheading of a man named Ned Stark and and the again the, with the spoilers the death of yeah <laughs> and the, the death of a queen's son. You know and like everything is driven from that. So. The Avengers again, your perfect example. The leftovers lost. Some of the greatest and most popular movies and television shows right now and also you know throughout time are launched from a place of somebody loses something and they need to get it they need to fill that hole and, and get something back. And that is why I love this panel because it's like we can be really specific about it. But I would say that most of pop culture is actually born. In the idea of of how to live in the absence yeah. of loss,
7: and I'll just say quickly because I know we got to do questions, but I, I will say some of my loneliest nights I've spent <laughs> watching friends. And look, yeah, it's it's not. look yeah. there are some <laughs> um, there's some problems. Some things don't hold up as well now as they did back then. But um, but look, it's like it's, I'm sure there's a lot of fans, like, I am a fan, but man, sometimes nothing makes me feel lonelier than, like, watching people have perfect hair and and live perfect lives, and, like, everything (laughs) works out in 20, 22 minutes, and I think there's, I think it's a real myth that, um, seeing pain on screen will be alienated or or isolating, because sometimes nothing makes me feel more known than watching, like, I was like, okay, you're writing staff, you as a director, writer, you as a novelist, like, somehow you've experienced the same pain. And so there's at least one more of me out there. I don't feel completely alone in the universe.
5: Yeah, it really Very well is bad. like the great unifier. You know, yeah. the, we don't, there are so many things we don't have in common, but the one thing that we, we are all going to lose people that we love yeah. and the journey that we go through that, it's...
7: And it's not socially acceptable to um, answer how is your day with bad. You know, yeah. you're, we're not allowed to. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes art is the only way that we can tell the truth because uh, if we're having just like s- small talk... Oftentimes, grief and pain doesn't fit neatly into
1: that.
3: Do we have any questions?
1: Yes, she does. (laughs) If not, I can keep talking. Everybody, Kelly Brown.
6: (laughs) Kelly Brown. Hello. I'm Kelly Brown. Um, Sorry, this was a little tall for me. Uh, I'm the unofficial president of the Julie Plack and Karina McKenzie (laughs) fan club. So my question is directed to you, ladies. Surprise, surprise. It just kind of occurred to me during this panel that both of your shows with Legacy and Roswell, all of the characters are kind of, their stories are rooted in grief with Legacies. I mean, obviously, like, Hope has been through and Alark have been through everything. But you also have the kids in the school that are grieving their lives and... Their futures, and you know what I mean. And then with Roswell, it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like all of your characters are grieving, are grieving for different reasons. My question is: is that something that's a constant thought in the writing process for both shows, or is it like something that's always on the the you know the top of your mind when you're writing their stories?
1: So it's a little bit of a long winded answer. So bear with me, but um, when it- Kevin Williamson and I decided to do the Vampire Diaries. It was a book that was handed to us. And uh, we just wanted to work together uh, at the moment and thought, well, why not? You know, uh, If if not, not th- something else, why not this? And as we got into it, we realized that at the center of the show was a girl who had just lost her parents and who felt dead inside. Kevin had just lost somebody very close to him in a very tragic way. And I had a history with that kind of loss. And uh and so the entire first couple seasons of vampire diaries were literally about kind of exorcising the grief demons. And um and we would not move on from an episode unless there was a moment in that episode that made us cry and released something, whether we related to it, whether we just needed a good sob, whether we needed Caroline and Bonnie and and, and Elena to have a sleepover because they just needed to be friends, you know, whatever that moment was. That was the best. That was the best. Oh, right. I cried and cried. <laughs> you know, we, that was what we were doing. We were cleansing our spirits of our own, like, of our own traumas, right? And then, uh, that, so that built the foundation of the show and then Kevin left and I was left alone in season three for a while. And I was trying to, you know, like swim dog paddle to not, you know, ruin everything and not mess up the show. And I got about seven episodes in and we wrote an episode about a lot of people who came back to life as ghosts, um, but i had been so terrified and uh, as i was writing and writing without him that i had sort of lost sight of why we were in this to begin with thematically and i was writing a scene in which a young girl who's a ghost basically has to go and she also the best yeah, and she admits how scared she is because she says what if there's nowhere else like what if this is it uh, and what if i'm going where i'm going there's nothing and what if i am alone and I wrote those words, and I burst into tears. Do it right now I, I burst into tears. I cried in front of my computer for an hour. I had a full blown like therapeutic style meltdown, which is rare for me because I usually only do that in movies and um and I thought, oh my god, that's what i 'm writing the show about now. like it's no longer Kevin and mine exercise exorcism of our grief it 's me expressing my terror at, at never finding something to fill the hole and that I might die alone. And that is, and then that the show became about family from that moment on love and family, because that's, was the medicine for, for my trauma and my, my realization that moment of like the fear of loneliness is the most powerful fear that we can have losing someone, not ever finding something. Um, and that is informed everything that I've done ever since. Um, My answer is going to be shorter. (laughs) Sorry,
4: sorry, but, but, but no, 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 I don't, uh, mostly because most of what I've learned about writing I've learned from you, and so that speaks to a lot of, of, you know, why I write too, but, um, I've been a writer my entire life. I was, I was a poet in college, um, and then I decided I like money, um, (laughs) but, but, my entire life. I mean, literally, like, since I was five years old, was writing. And I, um, my mom once, I think she, like, read my journal, because she was my mom, um, and and was like, you just seem so sad. And I was, like, maybe 15 when that happened, and, and she was devastated by what she was reading and, like, just seemed like I was so not okay, um, which wasn't the case, but... The the best way that I've seen it put, and this is extremely on brand, and I apologize, but the lead singer of Counting Crows (laughs) was once asked why his songs were so sad, and he his answer, and I'm paraphrasing, was basically like, "Cause when I'm happy, I don't want to sit at home alone and write. I want to go live. And like when I'm happy, I'm not. I don't want to sit in front of my computer. When I'm sitting in front of my computer, I probably have something to cry about. And that it goes into my writing a lot. And I don't. I cannot imagine that I'm ever going to write a comedy. Um, but the best I do is infuse comedy into stories about loss, whatever that loss might be. Um, and the best thing that I've learned is to do my best not to judge the characters uh, on the way that they grieve. The same way that I wouldn't ever want to judge the people that I love on the way that they grieve because it's complicated and it's weird and it's uncomfortable and Someday I feel i don't know that I've achieved it yet, but someday I would like to achieve that feeling on the page and in the on the screen um, because it's it's pretty profound when you when you are going through an extreme tragedy and you feel connected and I think that that's what you try to do with what we're trying to do with our our work is make people feel connected. Thank you. <laughs> Kelly Brown is like like every panel I do she's like I got a really brilliant question and like we guess she's very dependable.
8: <laughs> it's really hard to follow Kelly Brown. And also Daniel, thank you for starting with the question that I came in here to ask. Um <laughs> it was great actually, but we we've like listened to you guys talk about loss and grief for this hour and honestly like I don't always think that death is the only way you experience grief and loss. So for me, I wanted to ask you ladies, what the the end of a show often affects me and I feel grief and loss, like end of Vampire Diaries what am I going to do? But then you hit uh, us up with originals and now legacies and I'm like, okay, we're safe. But there are a lot of pieces of content that come to an end like Game of Thrones and everyone's like, what do I do now? What is that television show for you guys? Friday Night Lights. (laughs)
4: I really am trying not to like grow up to be just like you, (laughs) but like here
1: we go. And by the way, they landed their finale gave you hope for everything, and that was why it was so beautiful. It like nobody had to die tragically. There didn't have to be a big you know sort of dramatic plot twist. They just got to believe that everyone was going to be happy, and what a beautiful, beautiful thrill that was. I mean, this is
5: on brand, given my first answer, but I, six feet under, for sure, yeah. for me. Same. Yeah. Except
1: for, na- I mean, but you got to see, you got yeah. to see them live their life. And how brilliant
5: life. that, you know, a show about death that it, it just, whoever pitched that in the writer's room, like, how about we skip ahead and see how each of them are going to die, I mean, it's just brilliant. And I just remember, you know, that it was back when people watched things live, and I watched it live, and I remember my friend Maite called me the minute that the, that the episode ended, and, like, I just picked up the phone, and I didn't even say hello, and we just literally sobbed on the phone oh, yeah. together for a good five minutes, because it was so effective. And even today, I've seen it a million times, and that song and everything. There is no way to watch that sequence and not cry for me. It's brilliant.
7: The Good Place just announced that its fourth season is going to be its last. I will say, I, I cannot be objective about that show. It's just it went and got me real good. I just accosted I,
4: Darcy I, in the green room. So did I.
7: So did I. You and I did both. Yeah, we found her. Found her. And I felt like I'm a cool LA person, so if I normally see someone at a coffee shop, I won't bother them. But I was like, we're in the same green room. I can say I love your show. <laughs> um, I, I love that show. Between. Uh, uh, seasons 2 and 3 I had a dream that it was the apocalypse and I was with Mike Sure in a bunker and I asked him to tell me what season 3 was going to be. <laughs> so um but but here's what I will say. Um it, it's going to I that show I find inspiring. I find it just operates on every level. I'm going to miss it so much. But the, the 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 only thing worse than a show you love ending is a show that goes on too long. And um and I I, I feel sometimes I'll I'll and again I I'm going to sound like a crazy fan, but Sometimes when a character is not acting the way I, I think they have been acting for the past five seasons, I'm like, the writers are making you do this. They're making you do this because they run out of stories. And I've been that writer, so I understand what that feels like. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 both so excited and, and grateful for the fourth season. Sa- sad, but but grateful that we we have had it and it will always live on Netflix. <laughs> Shows don't die; they just go to
8: Netflix. And at least you got a heads up that that was happening, rather than it just disappearing.
7: Yeah,
4: yeah.
3: Well, I feel like we could talk about death and. Oh, oh no, no, no! Let, let's get one. Let's def no. Get one more question Hi. in place.
4: Hi, more
3: people I know.
9: Yes, I'm Janelle. Hello. Um, so I'm a teacher, and I teach uh, sex trauma survivors. Yes. <laughs> Applause Yay, for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And something that I've learned that, um, is surprising that surprised me, although thinking about it now, isn't as surprising as how much, um, when I'm in the classroom and when things are going down and it's getting really intense, um, how it's very shortly followed by something incredibly silly. Um, like, you know, we're doing the wobble or we're like singing a song. Um, and so I'm just wondering about that, your thoughts on that, and how, you know, people who've experienced a lot of grief, a lot of trauma, kind of don't get that kind of levity. They don't get that. It's like we assume that they're always overcome and like not able to be dorks, just like really okay. dorky. Um, yeah. If Do you have thoughts about that.
7: Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> no, we have. Um, my my show takes place. Or uh, the um one one of our major sets is um this uh, exercise studio in which um, all three women, uh, our leads, uh, work. And um, one of the characters of the course of season one uh, invents a dance class called Middle School Dance Party, which is basically just, like, dancing to Britney Spears. And I had to, like, really fight hard. Like, people didn't understand. And then um, it's interesting that you talk about teaching... and working with um, uh, sex trauma survivors because I, I didn't even understand why, like, on a gut level, I felt like we need this Britney Spears dance class. Like, n- no one understood why in, like, a serious show about death and grief we needed a silly dance class. And, um, and then I was at a dance – I also go to dance classes. Um, and I was at a dance class, and um, someone was talking about how uh, – how it can be very effective uh, for survivors of incest in particular because um, you can feel very um, isolated from your family and, and, and alone in the universe. And something about doing the same motion at the exact same time, like, on this like primal core, like pre agrarian level, makes you feel a part of a tribe, a part of a community. And I'm like, yes, that's why we have this Britney Spears dance class on my show. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, look, you, you look at any great painting in an art museum and you see light lights and dark darks. I really do believe, I mean, there's also like the paintings that are just like white on white, I guess, which is a whole nother kind of a school of art, I suppose. But um, I don't know, you're, you want a canvas that has dimension and, and, and sings. And sometimes that means really painting with all, all the colors in the palette.
1: So uh, when I, uh, when I was 14, I lost a sibling and at 14, you don't really know what that means. And you sort of have you, know, you either have no feelings about it whatsoever or you have all the feelings but you don't know how to express them. And the day of the funeral, um, while everyone else was like at the memorial and doing the serious stuff... Some of my we were in eighth grade. We we're about to graduate. Some of my classmates said, hey, we're going to go to the park and play some football. Do you want to come? And I said, sure. So I rolled out to the park with them. And we in the park had this like epic game of, of, of flag and tackle football as eighth graders that went on for hours until the sun was setting. And we were running around and tackling each other and playing the game. And It was to this day one of the happiest moments of my life. Now it's a weird happy, and it's an awkward happy, and it's probably a false happy, but it was a it was what I needed in that moment and I think you know, I look at the parkland kids who um this does tie into the panel in that like I use them as as sort of a an inspiration for my legacies kids um you know those parkland kids went through an extraordinary trauma, and then right afterwards we were thrust into this really dynamic and, and, and probably fun, emotional, uh, I mean, a national spotlight, right? They got to go to the White House, or not the White House, they got to go to, you know, the marches, and they got to, you know, meet Oprah, and they, yeah, exactly, and they got to, you know, be part of this huge community, and there's all kinds of tension online and everything, and I watched it happen, and I said, oh, God, these kids, like, they're in that football game right now they're in the dance class and it's the greatest thing they've ever had. And the world is going to move on and forget about them right when they need the world the most. And when I write about, you know, my kids on legacies, it's these kids, like they might be getting through it. They might be funny. They might be making jokes, having a damn good time, but they are deeply, they're living in a deep trauma. And we all, we have to remember to always continue to check in and continue to take care of them, whether it be fictionally or in real life. Um, Because that's the stuff that haunts you for decades and your whole life. And if we forget about you, if we forget telling stories for you, or forget taking you to the dance class, then um, that's when the real, like, sort of loss and pain lingers. Mm I think that is this working? Mm -hmm.
4: No. okay. Um, I had. Hi. You guys are great. I just um, gotta say, I love you guys. <laughs> Hashtag goals. We each have a half a brain. <laughs> um, I uh, I have sort of two two sides of this answer. Um, one is, the, the greatest sort of loss and grief that I've experienced in my life was losing my grandmother. I've only lost one grandparent, and um, it was really bad. And it happened right around the time that I was, like, falling crazy in love with some guy. And I look back at that time and it was like I was self-medicating. I was like deeply like I went from like funeral to like a, a road trip, like a sexy motel road trip. And I like didn't think about my grief. I didn't think about it at all. And it wasn't until I broke up with that guy ages later that I would got like I got like steamrolled by grief. And I was like, fuck, I can't believe this guy like got to me this badly. But it wasn't that. I had delayed grieving my grandmother because I had been able to like focus all of my energy onto something else. And I think that um that like when you talk about the silliness, like having a burst of of silly is so healthy because you have a burst of like moment where you're laughing, and then you can process and return to a middle level as opposed to, like, being like, I'm just going to ignore this pain that I'm feeling and drown myself in something else, and it's coming back. Like, it's definitely coming back. So that was, that's sort of that's really my only yeah Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think that the other thing that's been, that's really interesting that um, I have not seen Explored on TV yet, and my show isn't really the space for it, or maybe it is, I don't know, but um maybe something more a slice of life is, is uh, what people in my generation are experiencing when we experience grief, which is different from what any of our parents had to deal with, and thus different from what our parents couldn't even ever teach us about grief, is um, how much of our lives we live in public, online, our social media sort of thing. And and so whenever I've experienced a loss, and And I think that I've experienced an inordinate, inordinate number of friends dying than like most people my age have. I don't know why, but um there's this sense of like, when is it okay to like post an Instagram story again, and it seems so stupid and so uh so surface level um. But it almost feels like until you've expressed your grief properly publicly, which is, by the way, a very private thing to go through and shouldn't have to be expressed in public, it's like not okay to express joy publicly. And um, it's one of the things that I I've sort of find myself analyzing a lot when when I go through losses and when people that I love go through losses is like this is a new thing. It's a new thing to navigate of like, when is it okay and how much grief is okay to express publicly and how much, you know, and, and I feel lucky that I get to put my grief into a TV show. And then I'm like, here you go. There's the, there's, there's all my pain, enjoy it. And then I'm like at a dance party on Instagram. But like, I'm, I'm, I think that that sort of sense of what you talk about when you talk about silliness immediately post grief is the complication of that is the judgment is the, is it okay and even the way you judge yourself, the, the guilt that you turn inward of like, oh my fucking god, I'm laughing. How could I be laughing? Um, and yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting thing to explore personally with my therapist. And it's an interesting thing to explore um, on screen when you're talking about people who are growing up in this day and age.
7: And we are dealing with that this season, so. See, I knew it. <laughs> and I was like, we are. Was, we very much awesome. are.
1: Yes. I, as she was saying that, I was like,
7: Oh, we are. Oh, we are. Oh, We're
1: we
5: building the spaceship.
4: We are? We're building the spaceship on your Instagram story. How? But can you tell me how you're building the spaceship? Because I don't know how to do it and I gotta actually do it.
3: Well, uh, thank you so much uh, to all of our wonderful panelists who are all amazing today. And thank you for coming out on a Saturday afternoon to talk about grief and loss.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
10: We're here with Meredith Averill, um, who's co-showrunner of *Haunting of Hill House*. Yes,
5: correct. Yes, okay. and currently co-showrunner of *Lock and Key*, oh, also which, for Netflix. I, but
10: that is that out yet?
5: It is not. Okay. It'll be out in February. Oh, very yes. exciting!
10: <laughs> um, but I just wanted to start with: if you know what your earliest TV memory is,
5: I would say I would say the one that had the most impact was *Felicity*. Yes. Why was that? Um, I am from a really small town in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. um, where most people graduate and stay there. And uh, Felicity was the first show I watched where, you know, it's about this girl who leaves her comfortable surroundings to move to New York City and she's, you know, chasing a boy and all of that. But it, I felt very connected to her and this idea of leaving behind something comfortable and, and going into sort of the great wide unknown. Yeah. And, um, and it, it was like inspiring. And I actually not, not, because of Felicity, but I did end up going to college in New York City. Um, and so I sort of look back on that experience with Felicity and wonder how much of it was motivated by that. But uh, I but applied. It, I didn't go, but I nice. did apply to NYU because of that. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that is probably, I mean, certainly I watched television when I was younger, but I would say right. that probably had the most impact in fact, on me. Because were
10: you in high school? when that? When I f- was
5: in high school, yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah, I was in high school. Mm-hmm.
10: That's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um and then in terms of like TV pick me up, is there a show that like you go to when you need comfort from oh, your yeah. television?
5: There are two and it's also helpful that they both are on, like they are on a, as a marathon on like like <laughs> TNT or USA or whatever uh, every night Sex and the City. Great. Which i've seen every episode of probably five times over but i it never fails that if it's on even though it's heavily edited i will watch <laughs> every episode um, and Friends, oh, which yeah. is also marathoned like yeah. every night. So you can always like, it's just that comfort, like you get into bed and you just want to throw something on mm-hmm. and it's just, so those are my two. And you can sure. do them in any order too. Exactly. It doesn't matter it about doesn't like matter. what's
10: on. And I agree. Yeah. Friends is one of mine for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it always makes me laugh, even if I'm me saying too. all the lines back I know. to them.
5: Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs>
10: We already talked about the fact that this is your first time at the festival. How's yeah. it going?
5: It's amazing. <laughs> I've made so many new friends and reconnected with people I haven't seen in years. Mm. And it's just such a chill environment. It's great also to talk to fans and have, like, I've been to Comic Con and it, it's just a totally different vibe. <laughs> and it can be a lot. And here it's just nice to be able to, like, hang out and eat some queso and talk to some fans and like who and and i mean I, it's been amazing it's That's been truly so amazing to hear. Yeah,
10: Have you i know you were here kind of quickly did you get to go to things that you weren't on did or was the schedule too tight it was a little t- yesterday yeah. you
5: guys kept me very busy yeah. um but i'm hoping to go to the female gaze oh, uh nice. panel later exciting panel. it was, it was there. funny
10: yeah. i heard emily telling it was, i didn't realize that this is how that went down but we had had a panel booked on masculinity, and it, we couldn't okay. get the right. We wanted, like, Justin Baldoni and Dak Shepard and yeah. um, Mauricio Moda, who's a writer that we know, and it just it wasn't the right panelist, so we, we had to let it go, and we replaced it with the female gaze. which oh, was like amazing. You know, I think this still works. <laughs> Next year, masculinity. <laughs> um, so in talking about your career a little bit, I was looking up, and your first TV credit is October Road, yes. which we did a reunion of last year, yes. and Adore Them. How did that come to be?
5: I uh so I was an assistant to to the showrunners Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec mm-hmm. for the second season. Um, and they have they became my mentors really and after that show unfortunately was cancelled they were brought on to run a show for ABC Family called Samurai Girl and they had read a sample of mine and you know knew I wanted to be a writer and it was the Samurai Girl was very much like Jamie Chung was the star it was very much like it was like Alias but for like a sort of slightly younger ABC Family audience Mm. and Alias is one of my favorite shows of all time and uh, so I I sort of asked them if they would consider me for it, and um, they did, and that was my first kind of TV credit with them. And then, after that show went away, I went on to do Life on Mars with them, which was—I always say—like the show that got away. Yeah, is, my
10: parents uh, introduced me to that one and love it and bring it up all the time as a canceled too soon that yeah. we need to do here. At the oh festival. my god,
5: I would I, die. Yeah, it, was, it is. Amazing! Yeah. I love that show so much, and I'm sure everyone involved would be happy to.
10: It was a it's a format for is it a remake from an yes, international? Yes, it was like
5: a BBC okay. show. Yeah, yeah. But we kind of took it in a different direction. Um, but uh, it's we did 17 episodes, and we actually able were able to do a proper series finale. Oh, cool! Because the a kindness that ABC uh, extended when they canceled us was to <laughs> at least let us know when we were. I think we were, you know. Uh, able We were still in the room, mm-hmm. so we were able to break a at proper series finale. So unlike most canceled shows, yeah. that just go away too, that have these sort of open ended finales that bum you out. Like yeah. we actually do have a proper ending, which is cool. That's awesome. Um, uh, so I did Life on Mars with them, and then I did the show Happy Town with mm-hmm. them. Um, all amazing shows gone too soon. Uh, and then I left their camp to go Beyond the Good Wife. For three years, which was like a totally different experience, but amazing. And yeah. luckily did stay on the air for quite some time. And then it all came full circle when I uh, had my first show at the CW called mm-hmm. um, I They were my executive producer partners on it. So yeah. we kind of, uh, we got to kind of reconvene there. Can
10: I ask, because they're part of Midnight Radio, right? And there's four of them. There's four of them. So we wanted one year, they've all been to the festival at different times, sometimes together, Um, and we had at one point wanted to do a panel on Midnight Radio, and the idea like, I hear about partnerships, but a a quadrant seems like, so were you just working with the two or were you working?
5: So I was, when I was their assistant, Mm -hmm. I was just working for Josh and Andre, but Scott, also, you know, co-created mm. October Road with them, so he was also part of the show and I just wasn't his particular, Yeah, he had his own assistant. Um, but he, the three of them ran um, Life on Mars and Happy Town together. Uh, Jeff Pinkner um, was a consulting producer on October Road while I was there, so I knew him, but Got he it. wasn't yet, they hadn't yet formed Band Midnight Radio. Integrated. They were also They were called, at that time, they were called Space Floor. Oh. They love names, their names, <laughs> those boys. They love them. So they were, the three of them were Space Floor and then when the four- of them came together. Now they're midnight radio. I'm so, like
10: endlessly fascinated with how that works. It's as, amazing. As a part of a partnership yeah. I'm like I cannot even see what four
5: I know. would be. It really works because I mean you've met them so you know yeah. like their personalities are so different but mm-hmm. it somehow it really really works and they're really good at knowing how to divide and conquer mm-hmm. and they have an amazing development executive, Adrian, who just sort of manages it all um, so it, it works. <laughs> so
10: how different was it going because then Good Fight or Good Wife is The King, so yes. that's two, and they divide yes, in a completely different do. way. Yeah. So what was, like, the biggest change for you being in that room versus working with Andre and...
5: Andre and a, Josh.
10: It's a very They're different just show, very, It's a very
5: different show. They're just very different personalities, the way that, um, you know, Robert and Michelle mm-hmm. divide and conquer is they they have they divide and conquer with different tasks, but they divide and conquer in the same way that is super efficient. Wow, um, that their duties are sort of very clearly understood, um, and they just collaborate really well. And I mean, obviously, one is a married couple and one, of yeah. those Josh and Andre at some <laughs> time, so just, but it's, it's, it's very, it's different, but like they, you know, they, they just have a system set up. Yeah. And when I started, I started on the Good Wife season two. So it was already like a bit of a, a well-oiled machine. And usually it's, you know, one of them is in the room while the other one is in editing yeah. or the other one is dealing with the notes call. And it's just, I think there's an understanding that we don't both need to be in the same place at the same time. Because if we're doing that, then no one is over here and no one is over there. And yeah. Yeah.
10: Emily and I just learned that this year, yeah. eight years into the festival. Yeah. Like we reorged where she's operations and I'm programming and yeah. we all, we both do everything. Yeah. But I don't have to go to all the venue walkthroughs. Why would three people need to go to that? Like, exactly. I can be having a programming call or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Which... And
5: it's, it's interesting too, because I've now, I've run three shows and all of them have been co- showrunner ships, yeah. I guess. And I, I don't know how much of that is because I was sort of raised mm. in the world of co-showrunning showrunners yeah. and seeing how that really works. But i And it's not to say I wouldn't at some point want to be the sole showrunner, but for now, like, I really love that process mm. because it's um, so amazing to have a partner. Mm. And when you're in the trenches and when, like, shit is hard at 1 a.m., it's so nice to be able to like turn to someone and be like fuck like, yeah. or like <laughs> or like is this a good idea or yeah. is this a bad idea just to have someone to kind of keep you in check and have that person who's a true partner is amazing and the, running a show and i'm sh- running a fe- festival there's probably a lot of similarities it is too hard of a job for one person yeah. to do. People it's, do it and it's amazing and props to them. And maybe, I, again, maybe I will someday, but it is such a hard job and you have to be in five places at once. It mm-hmm. is amazing to be able to have a partner to, to, have, to share that with. It's
10: the thing I'm endlessly grateful for. And you're right, like, you know, we both have instincts and guts and we definitely disagree at times. But if we both feel something is wrong or we both feel something is right, it's just like three times more certain that that's true. Because if yeah. we both had that initial gut,
6: yeah. That's what you have to do, yeah.
10: which is just... She's very nice. Exactly.
5: Like, and you know what you like your strengths are and what you care about and what she might not care about like I'm running lock and key with Carlton mm-hmm. Hughes right now and oh, like he love doesn't Carleton. he's the best. He's amazing. And so like he doesn't care about wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't need to know like what Kinsey's going to wear for breakfast in that so, scene. He doesn't care. So I know that like that's what I I take care of. That is one of the many things that I sort of take care of that he doesn't. He has such an amazing eye for like visual effects. Mm-hmm. Like, having worked on, obviously, Lost, Lost. in many mm-hmm. other shows and The Strain and Bates Martell and all these shows that were sort of more VFX heavy. So I know that, like, he's going to sort of run lead on that. And so it's been great. There are th- some things that we always can talk to each other about mm-hmm. and get on the same page about before we move forward. But then there are other things that he's like, he knows I got it and I know he's got it. Yeah. And it's great to have that.
10: I love to to be able, when somebody asks me a question, to be able to be like, that's an Emily question. Yeah. So I have a gut, but like, that's not my territory. And if you need an answer right now, I can make one, but that's her, her domain. Yeah. Well, how long, I know it was a little bit of a short lived show, but Jason Kadams is a pretty big deal at this festival, but you, what was Pure Genius not working with a co-show runner? Like what? Because Jason's very different than Carl's. He is
5: very kids. different. I've like, been very lucky to work for I mean, yeah, showrunners that are a... all very sort of varied. Jason is, you know, he he was, he spent a, a lot of time in the room um, before we started production. Like, he was in the room every single day, mm-hmm. all day. And then, obviously, when production started, it just gets a lot harder. But what's amazing about him is that... He just has such an, um, a great eye for the board mm-hmm. you know there are certain showrunners who come in and have like this beautiful mind of like no no no, you gonna move that scene down at the end of act two and then you move this here and then he has that ability um so it was kind of amazing to have him come in and see him work and and he also like he's a very he's a very thoughtful quiet man Mm -hmm. like the very the opposite from Mm -hmm. like josh applebaum who would like pace around a room and whatever yeah he would come in and sit down and like sometimes you would pitch something to him and he would just need time to sit and think about it which i was sort of not used to yeah because i was used to like constant just like pitching 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 and so it was a transition for me because i I would pitch something and he would have like Mm. literally zero, zero response and i would be like well he Fucking hated that. That yeah. really land, yeah. didn't land. And then it's uncomfortable. Like, literally, not... <laughs> it's super uncomfortable. Yeah. And then, like, literally two hours later, he would be like, "Well, let's go back to what Meredith was saying." And I'll be like, "What?" what? <laughs> like, so it was it yeah. was hard to know if something was landing. But that's yeah. just his process. Yeah, like, yeah. he's you realize he's just taking everything in and working it out. Um, and you're not always getting that immediate feedback. And yeah. you can't. You also, as a writer in the room, have to learn to not need that. Um, but that was something that I, I really learned from him. and
10: So it's now talking about Hunting of Hill House, which is yes. huge. Like, I mean, for me, it was out of nowhere type of like, why is everybody talking about this? <laughs> what is this thing? I don't usually like scary things. So mm-hmm. I was very much avoiding it for a while. Um, but not just the showrunners or co-showrunners, but all of those shows, October Road, live on Mars, The uh, The Good Wife. Those are very different than Haunting of Hill House. Like genre-wise, you're across the board. So what drew you to do this story?
5: Uh, I've always been a really big horror fan, despite the fact that that was my first true horror credit, though Happy Town definitely Mm -hmm. kind of dabbled in horror, for sure. Um, I had been a big fan of Mike Flanagan's films. Mm-hmm. I loved Hush. I loved Oculus. Um, and I had worked with Amblin. Um, prior to that, we had developed uh, a show together. And so when Mike you know, sold the show to Netflix and they were looking to pair him with someone who had done TV before, I read the script and just instantly fell in love and felt like I could see the show and I could see what he wanted to do and I thought it just felt really special yeah um and I loved that it scared me but mostly it moved me I could see that there was a lot of emotion there and I knew where he wanted to take the show he had a Bible that he had to put together to sell it to Netflix and so a lot of the sort of bigger tent poles in the season he had already you know sort of decided on and there was still so much that we had to fill out with the writers room but i at least knew where he wanted to go with it and i thought it was just amazing and brilliant and really wanted to be a part of it and feel very lucky that i got to be that's
10: so and i think that's the things that transcend a genre is when it is actually about the characters and the people and the story and there's something moving it's not just a like the, the thing popping out from the back seat of the car exactly. is a is a jumpy yeah. moment that was also warranted and earned yeah to to do that to me that late in the game <laughs> i'm a very jumpy oh, no. person but it's the it's the relationships and yeah. it's that family that you're invested in and it's why people who maybe don't watch a ton of horror can still watch it and be invested which i thought was amazing yeah your episode bent net bent neck lady is like it's funny I rarely can remember the names of episodes or like look them up and that one obviously is aptly titled for yes. what it's about but is it one of I think it's the episode people talk the most about from the series how how and when did you know that that would be your
5: episode Um, early on in the process the uh, way I like to run brooms is having as much especially serialized mm-hmm. mythology shows like that Having as much have it worked out before you actually start breaking episode one, like having a pretty solid blueprint of where you want to go in Mm -hmm. the show, allowing for discovery and change along the way. But I really feel strongly about needing that sort of blueprint. And so... We knew that the first—Mike always knew that the first five episodes, each one was going to belong to a different sibling. Okay. So he had already had that worked out, and we knew—he knew that episode five was going to be the Nell episode, and we knew what was going to happen in that episode at the end. Um, And so before we actually started breaking episode one, I also like to assign episodes early. Um, And there's a lot of schools of thought about whether that's good or not, like at The Good Wife— you wouldn't know who was writing a given episode until literally like it came off the board and robert or michelle or both would just say okay you're writing this episode and you're like oh okay (laughs) and some people think that that's a great way to do it some people like i personally like to let the writer know which episode is going to be theirs because i find that um when you come into the room that day start of the first day of breaking that episode, you've already had someone who has been thinking about this episode for weeks, sometimes months. So you hit the ground running. You're Mm -hmm. not starting sort of fresh. And so early on, Mike and I decided who was going to write every episode. And... Uh, he knew that he was going to write he had obviously written the pilot he knew he wanted to write episode two and we sort of discussed based on uh, the writers and strengths we knew that they had who should write the other episodes and i had sort of said i would he's like what episode do you want to write first of all like you know and i said i would really love to write the Nell episode, and he said, "I was hoping you would say that, oh, that's which was so awesome." Nice. Um, obviously, he knew he was going to write six, yeah, the yeah. oneer, the, yeah, you know, the yeah. big single shot episode too. So uh, that was awesome. So yeah. I was thrilled to be able to write that episode, and you know, felt so connected to Nell and and that, and the actress Victoria oh, Padretti is just like what a find. Yeah, um, she is so incredible and elevates it in, in every way. And I, I was just thrilled that that episode. Um, made such an impact on people. A
10: hundred percent. One of Emily's best friends who went to the mental health panel yesterday, I was in the hotel room with her as we were leaving for closing night last night. And she goes, she wrote, like, just couldn't stop saying that the the, ep- the episode name and how much she loved that you were the, she was like, I knew she was on Haunting of Hill House and a co-show runner, but I just didn't put together that she wrote that episode. Oh, wow. Like, that's the one that really meant the most to her. So. It's it's fun to learn those things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to end, one, I was really excited to have you at the festival for all the reasons we've said, but also to have you on the podcast because when you wrote back to say you wanted to come to the festival, you're you are the like first. Maybe only in my point to get an email saying that you listened to the podcast. Yes, which I do. I've been
5: listening to your the podcast leading up to this, talking about how you put together the festival and everything, which yeah. I think are is great to get that insight too. It, so. it has been
10: an experiment with yes. with AJ and Anthony yeah. and the whole team at Five ome but it it took a couple of twists and turns from doing sort of ninety days out, sixty days out, thirty yeah. days to then yeah. making it more thematic about balance because I think that's what we're all trying to do so I'm glad that, that people are hearing it and that you heard of it like that was just um so thrilling for us but I wanted to end with the question it's a fun one of if you could tell anybody something to binge this summer old or new what's like the thing it can be maybe something you've recently discovered and if Emily was asking you this question, she'd say you don't have to binge it because okay. she doesn't binge things.
5: This is what I but- would say. I would say, and it's sort of a two-part answer. I would say binge Chernobyl, but do it with a flea bag chaser, <laughs> because that's what I just did, and it was perfect. Because Chernobyl is amazing, but it is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Uh, watch. How many episodes is it? Uh, I think it's only five. Okay, um, but it's 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 tough, and okay. so whether it's fleabag whether it's dead to me Mm -hmm. do it with a chaser after but both all of those shows are uh, incredible um
10: well and i like that you said those because those are i haven't seen the new season of fleabag and i haven't seen chernobyl so like those are the ones i'm going to do do did you do them would you do like so one time i was emily was catching up on the americans and veep it was two shows she hadn't seen and she likes to download episodes and watch them on a plane Mm -hmm. and it Horrified and entertained me to watch her on a like four hour flight go back and forth one episode of The Americans, one episode of nice. one episode of The. Yeah. American- I was like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "I just I can't I can't watch like three episodes of The Americans. I have to." She chased yeah. it episode yeah. to episode. I, I think yeah. I'd have to do all of Chernobyl and then
5: all of. Oh really? Yeah, oh no! I I needed to do well, especially because Chernobyl the episodes are quite long. Oh, okay, like, they're Maybe like true like they're some are like seventy minutes. Oh. I think. And, and so, and you also like want to think, you want to like take okay. it in. Um, you could do that, but I mean, when, you'd be in for it. Okay. that's So I would recommend a true like episode of Chernobyl followed immediately by an episode of Fleabag. Great.
10: See, <laughs> what to watch and how to watch it.
5: Exactly. Thank you
10: so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and A.J. Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020, in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit ATXFestival.com and follow us on social media at ATXFestival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast, and stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.